0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts.
1: Do it for the team. The free
0: COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up.
1: Do it for your besties and the resties.
0: It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends.
1: Do it for birthdays.
0: And help protect your family.
1: And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And camp outs to experience and big hugs and to be a kid get your child vaccinated and give them the power paid for with pennsylvania taxpayer dollars hey sports fans adam carolla here i want to tell you about my new daily sports show all balls all sports join me and my co-host comedian sports expert jeff cesario five days a week as we get into the daily news from the world of sports and gambling from NFL and NBA game action to off-the-field shenanigans, there's no sports topic too hot for all balls, all sports. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and find us at podcast1.com. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Kevin Pelton of ESPN, and we go in-depth on the NBA Finals, of course, including our predictions, but more than half an hour on the matchups, the schemes, the takeaways from the first three rounds of the playoffs, a lot of really great stuff there. Then Pelton and I talk about... The surprising departure of Doc Rivers from the Clippers and where they might be going from there, and our takeaways from the Orlando bubble overall and kind of how to temper and manage expectations. So, I thought it was an absolutely great conversation brought to you by Bet Online. Use the podcast one promo code for your special sign up bonus. Episode runs just about an hour. I think you'll really love it. And here it is. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thanks as always for having me.
1: I'm very pleased that we have a couple of days to kind of really process this finals because I think especially when it is a matchup that was not particularly anticipated before the playoffs start it's good to really take some time to think about it and kind of think think where the pieces go and I'll, I'll start with it more open to you kind of how have you been thinking about this series now that we know the two teams
0: I've been thinking a lot about it, you know, probably back to when both of these teams took 3 1 series leads, even though we know Denver's track record went down 3 1 in series. And I still gave Boston a pretty good shot of coming back at that point, you know, just because the series had been so close and they had gotten Gordon Hayward back. And, you know, it did seem like maybe in game five they were going to figure some things out, although it didn't end up working out that way. But uh, I went back to a piece I wrote ahead of the 2014 finals, looking at which factors have historically. Historically, Predicted the outcome of finals matchups to try to guide me because I, I don't feel like I have a good feel for this one in part because Miami has just been such a wildly different team in this playoff setting than they were during the regular season.
1: Right. And I mean, that was for me one of the most significant takeaways of the playoffs so far is that Miami's offense in particular has been so much better. Goran Dragic really coming to life in the seeding games and then in the playoffs has been important. They've been able to put together a rotation of just like consistently solid players. Jay Crowder, you know, mostly shooting well has helped. And yeah, so Miami is a to me a different team. I mean, they just went through the Eastern Conference twelve three, which is the same record that the Lakers had in the West. But when you think about the opposition they faced, they faced a bunch of good defenses as well. A really a really impressive performance by Miami. And you're you're right. I think the calibration has been a real challenge for me. And then another one is the concept of you know like star power versus depth. I mean, that to me is, is I mean, you don't want any series to be a referendum on it, but this is so stark that, I mean, the Lakers have the two best players in this series in the abstract. LeBron and Anthony Davis, we don't know with health and everything else if that's going to necessarily continue. But then the Heat have, I mean, depending, so so the third best Laker, I would probably go with Danny Green. I don't think Frank Vogel would agree. I think they would go in other directions. But how many members of the Heat are better than Danny Green right now? And the answer is a lot.
0: Yeah, especially when he's shooting the ball, as he has in this postseason. I mean, you know, if it's Danny Green that we saw during the 2018-19 regular season and at times during the 2019 playoffs, it's a different story. But, you know, his uh, his three-point shooting has, over the last four or five years here, tended to come and go, and, and we're in a go uh, period of that. Yeah, I mean, I think you can make the case that it's eight players, I guess, for Miami that are plausibly better than the Lakers' third-best player.
1: Yeah, I mean it's. I, I was going through it, and there were at least like three or four inarguables, and then after that, it became a little bit, a little bit more just eye of the beholder who's playing well. But yeah, you could argue it as high as eight,
0: and that is definitely an unusual situation for a series. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned about the quality of play, uh, quality of opponents that the Heat beat on their way here, because I, I think that's a notable thing. If you go by, you know, regular season performance, which. You know, who knows how how valid that is in this setting. Uh, Weighted by the games they played against each each opponent, it was the most difficult set of opponents that any team has played en route to the finals since 2010.
1: Wow, that is really impressive. And to go through it with a cleaning glasses version, a plus five point differential in in the playoffs is insanely impressive.
0: Yeah, and so I, I think that there's a sense that like... Well, the Lakers and the Heat have played equally well in the playoffs, and I don't think that's true. I think Miami has been the better of these two teams, has been the very best team in the NBA in the playoffs so far.
1: Yeah, and it's true. The Lakers have this crazy. So, using cleaning the glasses filter, the Lakers have this crazy differential. But when you factor in the context that they, you know, especially when when the Rockets started falling apart a little bit, and the Blazers in the first round, especially when Willard was when Willard got injured, you know, and it's not to say that those were patsies or anything like that. For sure, they weren't. I mean, I had the Rockets as a second tier championship potential team, so kind of the same tier as Boston, for for what it's worth. But. First of all, the Lakers didn't play any tier one team, and and the the Heat already knocked off one. And and some people would have had the Celtics in there. I did not, and they, you know, and they handled those series. I mean, they were one of the most incredible things for me with Miami is they haven't. Not only have they not trailed in a series so far, it hasn't even been particularly close.
0: I mean, they haven't lost consecutive games at any point. Yeah, I mean uh it it's really been quite an impressive playoff run, and you look at the uh the the opposition that the Lakers have faced it would be i think the six in the sixth easiest since nineteen eighty four since we went to the sixteen team playoff format so there's a there's a pretty stark difference. Uh, between the paths these two teams have taken to get here. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean all that much historically, like whether you played a hard path, but uh, you know it it certainly informs the idea that I, I don't think you can just look at the fact that the Lakers have, were so much better than the Heat in the regular season and say, okay, obviously the Lakers are the heavy favorites.
1: Well, yeah, and, and as you brought up earlier, the question of what is a representative and what is a non-representative sample is really interesting there, and I mean— there's there's an interesting one in terms of Portland. I mean, so Portland certainly not the most inspiring team, and it's not like they were insane in the, in their series against the Lakers. But you know, there was a difference between what they were pre pre hiatus and what they were after, especially when they got Nurkic back. So you know, like though, all those various consider- considerations are interesting. Um, another striking part of this series to me that I, th- I think is going to end up being a big inflection point is one of the real hallmarks of Miami's offense in the playoffs has been that they've gotten to the line an absolute ton. There have been a lot of players that have driven it. Jimmy Butler, in various moments in time, Bam can certainly draw a lot of fouls as well. And the Lakers have a wonderful defense That is not that has been true all year. It's not a surprise. They have good personnel. They, execute, they generally execute well, and they've gotten better over the course of the series. But the one thing that this Lakers team defensively does not do particularly well is they foul a ton. And... I'm, I, I keep i don 't know if it 'll swing like every game in the series i don 't think it will, but it is a factor that i 'm going to monitor closely really throughout because foul trouble you know first of all it 's it's a way for the other team to get easier points, but also it can potentially take important players out now for the Lakers, that idea that we talked about before of the gulf between their two best players and everyone else means that the players it might be taking out are less valuable, especially because of lebron 's lack of fouling generally speaking. So how are you thinking about that as a potential kind of advantage for Miami?
0: I mean, I think it depends to some extent on how we see the Lakers play this series, which is probably another big-picture question about it, Uh, given the dramatic difference between the personnel they used in the Houston series and then in the Denver series, where Dwight Howard goes from essentially a non-factor, almost entirely out of the rotation against Houston, is the Lakers go small to match up with them. Uh, Something that, you know, I... I don't know how you felt about it going in. I thought it was kind of a mistake, but they proved to have more than enough depth on the perimeter to make that work with Rajon Rondo playing as well as he did in that series in particular. Uh, I mean, it's Dwight and JaVale who are going to be the guys who are going to really foul and frequently and cause a lot of problems like that. So, you know, it, the question is how much they're going to play in this series, I think, is it's related to that.
1: Right, and as has been the case in really every Lakers series, and this was something that came up a lot when previewing the the Lakers Nuggets series, is... LA in particular, they look so dramatically different when they play big versus when they play small, and and a part of that is the sheer location of their defenders. So and and uh, and the opposing offense when when you get the other plays in the floor. So like when they play big, they generally have more they have more guys around the basket, and they theoretically give you know give Bam another play another place to be. However. If Anthony Davis is make, is is making enough shots that you want to that you don't want to put a, one of the traditional centers on him, then that creates and or the, you don't you want to put Bam on him, then you have to put somebody else on the traditional center. It's just a really interesting chess match between Vogel and Spo in those in those opportunities.
0: There's kind of a lot of inter- interconnected things here. I think in terms of stylistically how the series plays out in terms of size. So free throws and fouls is probably one of them. Another is the offensive glass is a battle in this series. I'm sure you were going to get to here. I mean, the Lakers have just been so dominant in that regard. And it's almost entirely because of the fact that, you know, you're playing two traditional bigs and if you're having to defend it, put someone with size on Anthony Davis, which you do, then that often leaves a somewhat smaller defender on Dwight and JaVale and frees them up to just hit the glass hard. So that that I think ties into it as well. And it's it's all all these things that go into the decision for Frank Vogel in particular, whether he's going to play big or small. On the other side, it is interesting because I went back and watched a little of the, the video of the two regular season teams that these games that these two teams played uh, for, you know, a matchup that we'll talk about, I'm sure, at some point in here. And, you know, both those games were played in calendar 2019, which was a wildly different time. On so many levels yeah. And one of the reasons it was a different time For the Heat is it was before they made the trade For Jay Crowder and Andre Iguodala And they were generally playing with Either Kelly Olenek or Myers Leonard Next to Bam Adebayo most of the time As opposed to these smaller lineups That we've almost exclusively seen from them In the playoffs where it's Jay Crowder or Andre Iguodala in that role Maybe Derek Jones Jr. So will the, the Heat Be forced to kind of dust off Two big lineups at some point in this series?
1: They might, um, though I think they'll they'll probably try to to space it out and make and make make those players have to defend a larger you know larger geometry, larger surface area. I guess is probably the better word for it. And so it's kind of you know which advantage can you press, and then you also think about the Lakers' potential advantage on the offensive glass. Then can Miami punish them theoretically in transition? Because one of the other elements is if you can. If you can get the defensive rebound anyway, then theoretically the other team has more personnel up there. You can can get in front of them, can get easier looks. But the Lakers have actually been the far more aggressive and effective running team so far in these playoffs compared to Miami. And that makes sense given the personnel.
0: Yeah, I mean that's been one of the biggest strengths for this Lakers team. You might even say the last two years, but particularly this year is during the regular season, they struggled in terms of half court offense. They were only okay in that regard. And it didn't it wasn't a problem for them because they got so many easy buckets, either with second chances because their offensive rebounding or in transition. And, you know, I think uh, uh, our friend David Locke in particular raised the idea that the Lakers might struggle in the playoffs because of the fact that teams would be able to take that away and force them into the half court. And they haven't for a couple of reasons. Number one, they still have been able to get out and run a lot because they haven't been playing the most disciplined defenses in the league. Houston in particular, you know, struggled with transition defense and just got, you know, basically hammered over and over again by the Lakers fast break in that series. Uh, and then the other reason is the Lakers' half-court offense has, I think, been better than we expected so far in the playoffs. So, But this is going to be, I think, the best test that they've faced in that regard in terms of both a really stout half-court defense and an organized team that is not going to let you get those easy opportunities.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, through the first three rounds of the playoffs, Miami has the third-rated half-court defense, and the two teams above them, Boston and Toronto, You know, part of that was, was their challenges against each other, and we brought up the idea of personnel— uh something interesting with Miami is that they haven't in the in the playoffs they haven't done a great job keeping the other team out of out of transition they're about middle of the pack 82% of opponent possessions have been In the half court, which is, you know, it's about middle of the risk by comparison. The Lakers have been the most aggressive there. Only 78% of their possessions have been in the half court, though that is partially, as you mentioned, attributable to who they've played and how those series went. And also the Lakers, you know, half court court defense has, has been pretty good. And so that creates more transition as well
0: yeah i mean especially that houston series they were also able to force a lot of turnovers and get out and transition that way and that's probably something else that miami again is just going to take out here uh you know, it's probably something more they benefited from in that series against Boston because the Celtics kept turning it over against their zone defense in particular.
1: Right. And the Lakers have turned the ball over to these playoffs as well. That is, you know, kind of paralleling fouling. That's the one thing that their offense hasn't done particularly well in these playoffs. And I think some of that will continue with Miami. And I mean, the elephant in the room, we've only brought up LeBron's name a couple of times so far. And I've been like, we got, I, I got asked this on the NBA cast a couple days ago, which was basically like, which of the two Eastern Conference finalists do you think has the better personnel to defend LeBron? And my answer was Miami. They don't have anybody perfect, but they have a lot of guys they can try. And that's intriguing because generally you have to do it through numbers because LeBron's going to, you know, like we saw with the Ducks, he's going to tear through almost everybody individually.
0: Someone's been internalizing strength in numbers.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs>
0: yeah no i i 100 agree with that and and one of the thoughts i had you know going back to thinking about this series during the conference finals is you know if i think about the order of these teams on paper i i still thought it was lakers celtics heat but that the heat you know had a better chance to win the series because they were ahead in it and it also presented a far more difficult matchup for the lakers than the celtics did and you know i i forget who it was that observed it that because of the fact that you don't have home court and the unusual nature and then just maybe the fact that, you know, this year's league is somewhat more less top heavy, at least since we got to the bubble than past years, this does seem to be the ultimate styles make fights postseason.
1: It really does. And another element of this, and we'll presumably talk about the Clippers at some point later on, is early in this even in the 2019 offseason and then going into the season, I had this larger idea that an unusual element of the 2019-20 season, especially with the fall of the Golden State Warriors, was that there wasn't a team that was simultaneously strong at the top and strong in the middle, and ideally you be strong at the bottom, but that matters a lot less in the playoffs. And so part of the reason I was so zealous about the Clippers being my championship favorite is I thought that they were the deepest of the teams with serious top-end talent. It ended up being that part of what sabotaged, if you want to Use that. But part of the, one of the big challenges they faced was that their depth wasn't the same in the, in the bubble. I mean, with Montrezl Harrell not being right, Lou Williams missing time as well, and they had various guys that were battling injuries and everything else. The Clippers weren't as deep as I thought they would be. I still think they could and should have won that series, but. That is really going to come to a head here. I mean, that was one of my big criticisms of the Malcolm Brogdon decision by the Bucks was that I thought it just made them a much shallower team. They didn't have as many counter punches because Malcolm Bro- – or just straight up punches because Malcolm Brogdon wasn't there. And this is the natural extreme of that, is that you have maybe the best player a lot in, in the world, LeBron James. And Anthony Davis is probably the best big man, depending on how you want to define terms here. And But they're going against a team that has a lot of different good players and an excellent coach that has done a pretty good job of deploying the players with different strengths and weaknesses.
0: He's done an excellent job of it, Eric Spolstra has. I mean, that's you know, it's kind of a mixed blessing for a coach. Like obviously you want to have options, but having options also means you keep- It's more difficult to establish a consistent rotation and you can more easily be second guessed for the decisions that you make with those players, which is something that, uh, you know, I think doc rivers faced is, is we'll talk about later in this pod here. But yeah, I mean, You know, Kendrick Nunn was a starter for this team all season long, uh, third in rookie of the year voting. Now he's basically completely out of the rotation. We'll see if they get anything from him in in the finals. Derek Jones, you know, has been kind of popping up for a few minutes at a time during the playoffs after being a huge part of the rotation. And then Myers Leonard, who started, I think, you know, maybe every game he played during the regular season was... You know, kind of the uh, the Keith Bogans honorary starter at center, who never came back into the game, but uh, was still playing an important role for them, and then basically has just been you know on the bench during the playoffs. So, you know, it's been pretty dramatic change for the Heat in terms of what they've settled on as a rotation, but it it has worked magnificently.
1: Yeah, Myers Leonard started forty nine games. All 49 he played in pre-hiatus, and then he had two te- technically came off the bench twice, but those were both in in Orlando games, you know, in the in the bubble. And so, yeah, that crystallized the, the change in the rotation. And I've thought a lot about the extended ripple effects of that trade with Memphis. And, and Memphis, they, you know, it, it's one of those beautiful things where two teams are looking in different directions with different priorities for... Move and and that's oftentimes how deals happen. Is you know one team's looking long term, one team's looking short term, and you you connect it. And so in that one, it was Memphis identified Justice Winslow as being the missing ingredient. Wings are incredibly hard to find, and his immediate injury concerns weren't or not concerns realities didn't matter as much to them. Where and all wasn't playing for Memphis and Jay Crowder wasn't playing well for Memphis and they didn't care as much about taking on twenty twenty slash twenty one money because the Grizzlies weren't gonna they weren't really gonna be able to do much with it anyway. And so it created this circumstance where Miami, because they had a player who wasn't playing for them but was desirable, was able to accomplish like three different goals at once, and one of those that we didn't expect to fully crystallize was getting two important rotation players without giving up anybody who was really mattering for their team
0: yeah I mean it was it was an incredible haul in terms of you know what it's meant to their playoff run and uh, I I mean, I was at the first game that these guys played or at least the first game that Iguodala played. I think Crowder may already and Solomon Hill, who uh, made some cameo appearances in the conference finals and also part of that trade. Uh, They, I think they had played on Friday night, but Iguodala's first game was a Sunday in Portland. And like, that was all the conversation was about Iguodala, obviously for a variety of reasons, you know, finals MVP, the fact that he'd been sitting out all season, it was his first game period. But, then for Jay Crowder, to end up starting for Miami and playing this really key role, more important really over the course of the playoffs than Iguodala, even though Iguodala was invaluable the last couple of games here to get them home to the finals. Uh, that's yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a great trade for Miami at the time. It has proven an even better trade for the Heat than I thought.
1: And I think that those players become exceedingly important in this series. Now, obviously, there will be people who point to Iguodala considering his finals MVP, while I thought it was, let's say, not deservingly given, um, was primarily for defending LeBron James. But remember, that was five years ago, and LeBron James is a cyborg who does not age in the same way that normal human beings age. But it will be fascinating to see that, and Crowder, and Jimmy Butler, and... Uh, John Hollinger had uh, he had an interesting piece breaking down the finals, and he talked about you know kind of uh, it was him or maybe it was somebody else was talking about you know like LeBron potentially guarding Jimmy Butler, and I I immediately went. OK, who cares? Like, you know, I I don't think that's a particularly massive challenge for LeBron, but guarding LeBron James is going to be an, or a structural challenge for the Miami Heat every second he's on the floor.
0: Oh, it, it is. You know, that's kind of the basis of of any defense when you're playing against LeBron James. And part of why, you know, Anthony Davis has been able to do what he's been able to do in the playoffs is, you know, if you go up against the Denver and they've only got one really athletic you know, power forward-sized defender and Jeremy Grant, and I mean, Powell Millsap is a quality defender in his own right, but not as athletic as Grant. But you know, he's forced to defend LeBron. Then what, where do you, you know, what do you do with AD? So that's been the conundrum for teams throughout the playoffs. And Miami has. More of those guys, even if they're not necessarily, you know, they're more like combo forward size than full-on power forward size. Other than Bam, I guess is the way you'd put
1: it. And that ties in with one of the definitive strategic elements of this series is basically Spo and the Heat have tried a series of different defenses, and I mean that as praise, not as criticism, over the course of of this year and the last couple. And I mean, to, they used the two-three to great effect against the Boston Celtics. Forced a bunch of turnovers. To got a couple games early as Boston was kind of trying to figure things out. LeBron challenges that in different ways, but you can think about the different approaches that a team can go to as trying to take away and concede different things. And what I'm really interested in from a broad scale is I think Miami's going to go with the approach of let's let everybody else beat us. They have because the Lakers, they have capable shooters for sure. I mean, I'm not going to you either know, they had KCP and Danny Green and... Caruso at times, and all these guys, they're not terrible. It's not like they're like a four Michael K. Gilchrist out there. Marquise Morris can help too. But I, I'm i interested in whether Miami is going to go aggressively there, whether they do it through a zone or some sort of switching man-to-man. And I'm guessing a zone is an easier way to do it with their personnel, just because the Lakers in a switching system could get somebody like Dragic or Hero onto, onto James or AD. I
0: mean, I think that you know, Miami is going to try zone for sure, and I think probably try zone pretty early in this series, even though they got through the first two rounds of the playoffs and made pulled off that massive episode over milwaukee without playing any zone it's still you know a staple for them something they played nearly every game during the regular season and they played quite a bit of in particular the first time these two teams played in la in november so the the tape i went back and watched that i was referencing earlier was every zone possession by the lakers against the heat is uh, marked by second spectrum that we have access to at espn and uh you know one of the things that that stood out is about the Lakers is compared to other teams is there was a lot more movement against the zone, a lot of really good cutting. I think that's what particularly got Miami out of that zone in the second game where they didn't play nearly as much of it was the fact that, You know, even at one point it was like an entry pass to JaVale in the post and guys cutting off of him in the way that you're used to seeing like split cuts from the Warriors, that sort of thing. And that was something that really caused problems. The Lakers got into trouble against the zone, like many teams, when they just basically passed it around the perimeter and didn't manage to penetrate it at all.
1: And that's really interesting in light of a criticism that I've had of the Lakers in these playoffs, which is when they've done particularly isolation work with LeBron, the other Lakers just haven't been moving around as much. It's been somewhat stagnant. And LeBron is such an unbelievably good passer. I think you want to give him seams and you create those by movement. And so it's interesting that they were doing that well way back in 2019 when these teams faced off. Yeah,
0: and and doing it against the zone. So, you know, the other thing we saw was the Lakers were mostly small against the zone, Uh, They didn't, especially the first game, they stuck with Kuzmet power forward next to AD or next to, to, I think, Dwight at one point, uh, as opposed to having the two bigs together. But, uh, you know, the two bigs do have the ability to work some high lows. And, you know, with something that Hollinger highlighted in his preview is the lob threat that Anthony Davis poses against the zone is unlike certainly anything we saw from Boston because they didn't play Robert Williams really at all in the series.
1: Well, and the Lakers have multiple adept entry-slash-lob passers. I mean, LeBron and, and Rondo were two of the best in the entire league there, so depending on what approach Miami's using, they can get the ball into the inside, something that that Boston Boston has guys who can pass, but they don't really have that, that whole mechanism a ton in their offense because they don't have the other leg of it, as you were talking about with Robert Williams.
0: And then another interesting question in the zone is, can the Lakers' offensive rebound just dominate the glass against the zone? And someone brought this up on Twitter last night when uh, Seth and I were going back and forth about the—our buddy South Parno and I were going back and forth about the Miami zone, about you know whether they would be forced to play their bigger players on the back line, unlike you know in that Boston's—much of the year, and in that Boston series in particular, we almost exclusively saw, you know, either Tyler Hero, Goran Dragic, or Duncan Robinson in the back line of that zone on the wings, uh, with Bam Adebayo typically in the middle, and then the guys with length, Jimmy Butler, Derek Jones, Andre Iguodala up top. And in that, in those games against the Lakers, and it was partially a product of personnel because Kelly, like I mentioned, Olenek was playing next to Adebayo a lot of the time you're not going to play him on the top line of a zone in the same way that you would Crowder or Iguodala if they're playing power forward, but they he was on the back line a lot of the time. And then we also did see them at times, put both of their guards up top on the front line rather than the back line. And I think that probably did have a lot to do with, with rebounding, but it makes the zone less difficult to penetrate. Like that was one of the problems Boston had is there's so much length that when you tried to put the ball on the ground against it, They're just getting it deflected or or ripped entirely. And that was preventing them from breaking it down off the dribble.
1: And one of the challenges that the Lakers will deal with, which Boston did earlier, especially before Gordon Hayward got there, was, and the Lakers, it's more extreme is, sure, they have some real high-end passers. LeBron James is unbelievable. Rondo is too. But if Miami starts overloading sides and the person who has the ball is not one of those couple guys, it could be a real challenge. Like if if Marquise Morris has to make the cross-court pass, because that's where the opening is in the zone, I'm not completely sure that he's going to be able to do that. And I mean, given, I mean, he's he's not like abysmal at that. He did throw one of the worst hit ahead passes I've ever seen in my life in the Nuggets series. But if it's, you know, KCP trying to make make those more aggressive passes, and also the- Danny Green. Danny Green. The unusual characteristic that some of the Lakers non-elite passers are also aggressive passers can create some real problems.
0: Yeah, so I I wonder how much, you know, that means guys like Caruso and Rondo, who just even though they're they're not as good outside shooters against the zone, they are better playmakers, decision makers, etc. That, you know, if you can maybe get them into open space against the zone could start to cause some problems and break it down. So it's gonna be really interesting to see how that matchup evolves. Uh, it was also interesting to see some of the personal that was out there in those zone possessions. I mentioned you know, Myers Leonard was out there at And we haven't seen him in a long time. James Johnson was in for the heat. They used him to defend LeBron because he's got he was kind of a good physical matchup. He was also part of that that uh, midseason trade ending up in Minnesota after the Grizzlies flipped him for Gorgie Jang. And uh, on the Lakers side saw a fair dose of Quinn Cook and Troy Daniels who uh, uh, Troy Daniels ended up in Denver and, and Quinn Cook has not been seen much during the postseason.
1: Are there any there? I mean, obviously, there are a lot of things, but are there any other kind of like high end elements that you think are worth discussing that we haven't hit so far?
0: I mean, I, I don't know if we've talked enough probably about the theory of the Miami offense against the Lakers defense. You know, this is something Hollinger pointed out is that maybe Adebayo as a playmaker isn't as effective because of the fact that Anthony Davis monstrous defensive pres- presence is slowing him down. And I'm curious how that might adjust things.
1: I'm interested in that too. And the, the element that we saw more actually in the Eastern Conference Finals than the Western Conference Finals is both these teams have one big that I consider you know better at cleaning up messes. I mean, Bam is pretty much the only big most of the time he's on the floor for Miami, whereas AD plays a fair amount with other ones. And that's so the Celtics' best interior attacks other than when they were in transition, well, you know, the pick sixes and whatnot, came when they could get BAM out early, especially when they when they were in, when Miami was in a switch heavy system, get him out early, and then attack before BAM could get back off of the switch or something else. And it's sort of the same thing with the Lakers. I mean, that was one of the most surprising, but it shouldn't have been surprising parts of the Nuggets series was when they were able to get primarily Dwight defending Jokic and doing a decent job, then AD was really able to muck other things up. And I think that it will be a, a an interesting challenge to see where, because I think for a lot of the seams for the Heat are actually going to be more at the three-point line than at the basket, but what... What are they doing preceding the attacks to help make them easier?
0: Yeah, I mean I think that's a good question. I I also – you brought up LeBron defending Jimmy Butler and I do think that is an important matchup from the standpoint of like so much of what Jimmy Butler creates is with his strength and his ability to initiate contact. This is something Duncan Robinson has talked about on the uh, the Old Man in the Three podcast that like he makes it difficult for referees because of the fact that he's so aggressively initiating contact that there's going to be contact. There's going to have to be a call, and a lot of the times he's benefiting from it. Now, if that's going up against LeBron James, number one, Jimmy Butler, as strong as he is, is probably not moving LeBron James. And number two, LeBron James has probably a lot better chance of getting that call than a lot of the guys defending jimmy butler most of the time too
1: yeah that's an excellent point and also miami has done some pretty aggressive matchup hunting with butler i mean they were mm-hmm. jimmy versus kemba at certain points it ended up being the default matchup just because miami was getting to it so easily and i think we're going to see i mean his effort was renewed in the houston series and that was so great to see for rondo because like rondo has been at times in his career he's been a wonderful defender but he just hadn't really brought it I think this is a series where he gets really exposed just because everybody that Miami plays on the guard line makes you work, and Miami also finds ways to get, not as aggressively as Houston or anything like that, finds ways to get the other team's worst defenders involved in the action. And Rondo on, let's say, Jimmy Butler or on Duncan Robinson, like those are much more challenging matchups for him than even what they were going at with Houston because Rondo was strangely effective guarding Harden.
0: I mean, Rondo running around uh, off of screens chasing Duncan Robinson does not seem like an ideal. Outcome for the Lakers to make
1: right, and the Lakers have a few guys that can do that, but they—I don't think they have as many as Boston did. And Boston would run; they ran into trouble. I mean, I thought about that a lot in Game Six, where Jalen Brown, especially when he was uncomfortable with leaving Ennis Canard, you know, to defend the defend the primary action two-on-two, two, was they were kind of trying to help and edge and everything like that. And you can't really do that against Duncan Robinson because he doesn't need much space. And so, the more you move away from him, the more space he has, and he probably has more than enough to, to use it. So. I, I think that there will be some real seams and, and that kind of gets into one of the kind of the overall thing that I've been really intrigued by with this matchup is I think this is going to be a really long series. I, I there are, you know, the Lakers have plenty of high end talent I could see games in the series being a blowout and Nate's brought up a fair amount that Miami doesn't hasn't blown that many teams out, especially in the like in the playoffs, but I I think some of these advantages for Miami sort of paralleling what I got wrong in Nuggets Clippers and maybe it's an overreaction some of the advantages that Miami has aren't going away and the Lakers can't you know they can't really do much to mitigate some of them because that would take away from what they do so well so my instinct is more that this is going to be a long series in fact in some ways even more than pr- predicting who I think is going to win
0: I agree with that I predict a seven game series and uh, you know we get these unsolicited emails from uh Doing their uh, lines. Wait, is that a is that a competitor? Should I not mention them?
1: It is. We all, I'll clean that up.
0: Do you have you have uh, anything? The I, they had they had exact series outcome, and I, I don't know if you've seen that, but I thought that was interesting to look at.
1: Uh, what did they have? They had Lakers all, all the
0: Lakers outcomes more likely than any of the Miami outcomes, and Lakers four nothing more likely than more, Lakers four three.
1: Wow. Yeah, I disagree with that, but I mean they're going after a different goal than we are
0: that that is true and uh, there is there is always a uh, a lakers tax in that sort of thing
1: absolutely yeah so i mean i think there is absolutely a chance that miami wins it um but my instinct is to go lakers in 7 i i you know, it would be breaking from a lot of my general like ideas and I mean the that the Lakers have Anthony Davis and LeBron James and it's hard to counter one of those guys much less both and yes they have all these other flaws that can be challenging and frustrating and they're not a perfect team but that is I I think that just kind of becomes that that that's the larger organizing thing to me so I'm gonna go Lakers in seven even though Miami could absolutely win it.
0: I really toyed with picking Miami for a long period of time. Now, what I watched of the Lakers against their zone offense made me feel better about their chances. But yeah, like like you, I am also Lakers in seven. And I think one thing that we haven't talked about that will be interesting, particularly if this series does go six or seven games, is what does that mean in terms of minutes per game for some of the guys in this series? Because neither of these teams has really been forced to stretch, I think, in terms of that so far. You know, you look at the uh, the leaders in minutes per game so far in the postseason, obviously it's heavily weighted towards teams that are long eliminated, but you have to scroll down to number 20 before you get to either of the players, any player from either of these teams, which is Bam at 36.8 minutes per game. Butler's at 36.5. That was something that, you know, Hollinger really did a nice job of hammering home during the uh, Milwaukee series is as much as. Mike Budenholzer was getting killed for not playing Giannis enough Jimmy Butler was playing the exact same number of minutes and just nobody cared because of the fact that they were winning 80s at 35.9 and then LeBron even after extending a bit at the end of that Denver series to finish them off in five uh, at 35 minutes per game he is averaging fewer minutes per game so far in the playoffs than Joe Harris Josh Richardson Miles Turner Tobias Harris Royce O'Neal uh, and Carmelo Anthony incredible <laughs> I mean, this is LeBron James. Like, he should have, you would think, a lot of gas left in the tank. I mean, we have seen him. We we saw him not be as aggressive offensively in the stretch run against Denver. I don't know how you felt watching this. To me, a lot of the fact that he wasn't driving in those situations before he was maybe a little more aggressive in Game 5 was about the fact that Denver was just basically showing him so many bodies. They weren't respecting the shooters, the Lakers shooters, and I don't think Miami is going to do that either, and that was kind of deterring him from driving, but that he probably still shouldn't have been settling for so many threes in that situation.
1: Yeah, I, I probably agree with you. I mean, I think that LeBron kind of could read the situation on the floor and that, that the jump shot was was a kind of a clear pattern path forward but that you can you could you could go blaze your own trail kind of get through get through guys lebron is unbelievable with that and it's harder to do that against miami than denver even though denver did a far better job in that series than against the clippers showing bodies to the other team star wing so yeah I, I think that it'll be telling with that and, and yeah the idea of rest and management when there was the long hiatus when also players are at various levels of physical shape due to COVID 19 and everything else and also I mean these teams pretty much running roughshod through their opposition I mean that yes there hasn't been as long of a lag because the league thankfully this year was able to kind of like rework the finals on on everything else being done a little bit more quickly so I, I think that it will be a it will be a factor and I think that LeBron in particular like I think that he will be able to be extended I mean you think think just to the basic fact that this isn't a regular season going straight into a playoffs that it is this very different thing. And remember, the Lakers didn't push super hard in the seeding games because they had absolutely no reason to. And I think they'll reap some of those benefits now.
0: You would think so. Yeah. I mean, and that's maybe one of the differences is their minutes are even lower because the fact that, as you highlighted earlier, you know, the they have gotten a lot of blots in this postseason, whereas the Heat, even though they've been winning all, you know, the same percentage of games, hasn't necessarily been winning them as easily.
1: Yeah, Plenty more with Kevin Pelton, but first a message from BetOnline. The wait is finally over and football is in full swing. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any other place. And make sure to use that Podcast One promo code to tell them you came from us and get your sign-up bonus, there are some great games this upcoming Sunday. Vikings-Texans, Chargers-Bucks, Steelers-Titans, Patriots-Chiefs. Which is my favorite of the weekend: Bills Raiders, and then Eagles Niners. Hopefully, excited for that as a Niners fan. We'll see where things go between now and then in terms of health. Uh, Bet online also has season opening bonuses, and you can start off wagering to win division and championship features today. So head to Bet Online online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses, best bonuses in the business, and use the Podcast One promo code for your sign up bonus at Bet Online. You're online sportsbook experts. Let's move on to the news of Monday, which was shortly before we recorded, that Steve Ballmer and Doc Rivers have, according to the Clippers press release, reached a mutual decision that Rivers (laughs) will step down as the head coach of the LA Clippers. And this is a jaw-dropper because of Rivers' almost incalculable equity within the organization when you think about the role that he played during the Donald Sterling saga, albeit in a diff- with a different ownership group to an extent, definitely a, a different front office. That was back in the Rock Divers days. He really had control of the entire organization for that period of time, and they needed him to do that. But then also the reporting and Chris Haynes said this, numerous other people, and it made sense that Rivers' presence with the Clippers was a part of the reason that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard came. And so it opens up the I would say not for every coach, but for many of the most desirable. Coaching spot that is that is you know theory, maybe even the most desirable one that's theoretically available of the thirty NBA teams, and also puts Doc Rivers on the coaching market if that's something he wants to do for next season.
0: Yeah, and there was a report I saw uh, my colleague Mark Spears the uh, the undefeated had reported that Philadelphia and New Orleans I think had already reached out to his representatives about yeah. it within the couple of hours. And boy, Doc in New Orleans I would be very excited to see. To me, that's by far the most non-desirable non-Clippers job. Out there right now is New Orleans, but uh, that's that's a separate issue. I mean, I I think you can make a case that this is the single riskiest decision to change coaches in the history of the NBA. Like when
1: you consider, you know, you know what you might be like that. That's really interesting because you think about the level of talent and success and his importance there. Huh? I'm trying to think about what other ones would be comparable. You're a better NBA historian than me, to be sure.
0: Well, I mean, I have. I have you know looked at a list of coaching changes this I I wrote a reaction to this that uh should be up by the time everyone is listening to this and you know basically one of the things I went into is until the past 15 years or so it was basically unheard of to fire your coach after a, having a successful season you know after 55 plus wins the only coach i found you know sometimes it's a little difficult to determine exactly who got fired like phil jackson left the bulls it was sort of a you know, well you can't fire me i'm not coming back situation in 98 and you know etc but uh oh
1: george- there was a lot of context that had recently yeah. been provided at, at yeah. some at some sort of outlet
0: true yeah that people could go watch I, I don't know where that would possibly be but the only like really fired was george carl in 98 when his contract expired. And there was a lot of context there in terms of his relationship with the front office deteriorating in ownership. But, uh, you know, historically, there's not been a lot of coaching changes like this. And usually it's at the end of the run, not at the start of it. So it's like, you know, Detroit firing Flip Saunders in 2008. I mean, you know, that was a risk to some extent. They had been to the conference finals the year before, but it was also pretty obvious where that thing was headed. The riskier move was trading Chauncey Phillips for Ellen Iverson a few months later, as it turned out. Uh, so to do this with with uh, the team that I think probably has the second or third best chances of winning the championship next year, certainly I think you'd have to say top three chance of winning the championship. That's. I don't know that there's a precedent for that.
1: Yeah, that that's really true. And and those who are advocating for, let's say, Mike Budenholzer to get fired, like that would potentially jump it to like you. you right. It's not going to happen. I don't think. Though it feels hard to calibrate that anymore. Um, but yeah, that is a a really interesting point, and there's also the question I I got into this a little bit with uh, Sam Bassini, and then it's come up and uh, I was when I wrote my Houston Rockets off season preview of the with the Rockets, it was this question of the roster is basically locked in for the next year plus, like they can't really do a lot, and with the Clippers, it's there is some flexibility there, but it's how much flexibility do the best players have? Like so, one of the ideas that I've been intrigued by in the last hour or so is. Like Mike D'Antoni, but then I've also wondered like what, what would Mike D'Antoni do there that would fundamentally change them? I don't think that the Clippers are all of a sudden going to start running super hard and they're going you know, fund, like, to fundamentally transform the way they feel about transition and everything like that. I, I think that to an extent this team, when, you're, when your dominant personalities are, just kind of like LeBron to that, to that way. LeBron teams play a specific way. My instinct is that a Kawhi PG team is going to play mostly a specific way as well.
0: I mean, to me, to me, I think where, you know, a coach has an opportunity to reshape things is there may be some flexibility with the pieces around those guys. You know, we'll see what happens with Montrez Harrell's free agency. You know, is Lou Williams someone you could potentially look to trade? Patrick Beverly, guys like that. I think that's where you could reshape the style a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it feels to me more like. Like besides just sheer frustration about what happened in the playoffs, and probably misplaced frustration, I think to some degree, which I go into into that piece, why I don't think a lot of what happened is attributable to Doc Rivers, uh, you know, using some of the uh, shot quality data. I beyond that, I think the one thing you'd point to is like there were obviously questions about the chemistry all year long, and the idea of how the holdover Clippers the. Trez, Lou Williams group in particular was going to fit was fitting with the Kawhi PG newcomer group. And you know, maybe a fresh voice helps manage those relationships, but otherwise, I mean it it's not broke. Why would you try to fix it here?
1: Especially because Coaching is this this real challenge, like finding a coach comes up a fair amount whenever, you know, like this came up when Nate McMillan got fired and, and a lot of other circumstances is it is very hard. You know, those elite coaches, the true value adds are Pretty few and far between in the NBA, and generally the path for 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 them coming up is that they've never coached in the NBA before. Like though they very rarely change teams. Like Nick Nurse probably isn't changing teams anytime soon. He just signed an extension. Budenholzer is an interesting kind of question here because of the value add in the regular season versus the playoffs. And I don't think the Clippers can afford to roll those dice when you consider where they are relative to the run that they could, you know, untested assistant coach do that and and so like yeah maybe they go with somebody like Tai Lu where he has you know connections within the organization he was an assistant there this year but I don't think that he transforms the Clippers in any material way. Though he could, that maybe they get along differently slash better. So yeah, I I don't know. A lot of times, this is there's this idea. It's, it's sort of the analog to the person on Twitter X says team Y should tear should tear this thing down. And you're like, well, <laughs> yeah. how would that work? <laughs> and that's that's the thing here is okay, you're going to fire Doc Rivers. Who are you hiring in his place, and how are they making this team different slash better?
0: Well, I had an extended debate with one of our friends about. Uh, Mike Budenholzer along these same lines and uh you know I I think that I I voted for Bud as coach of the year this year I think that what he does over the regular season is much more important than whatever flaws he has in the playoffs and that a lot of it is generated of his own success expectations generated by his own ability as a coach uh but, the, you know, that person suggested, well, they should fire Bud and replace him with Mike D'Antoni because they have so much variety on next season. I'm like, so your solution for uh, the fact that the team hasn't been able to go to fire far enough in the playoffs is to hire Mike D'Antoni, who's never been past the conference finals. Like, I don't think that makes D'Antoni a, uh, a bad coach, and I don't think it makes him incapable of having that kind of success in the playoffs, just as I don't think Mike Budenholzer is. But, like, if your complaint is, OK, well, he's not a proven enough playoff winner. Well, who are these proven playoff winners who are coming available on the coaching market like Ty Lewis has got to be the closest
1: thing right he does have to be and Lou does you know he has a championship and he has a championship where part of it was managing challenging sometimes mercurial star players and it seemed like Lou did a did a pretty good job there and he has a connection with those with those players. So also that would be a potential potentially valuable piece of intel that Steve Ballmer and Lawrence Frank have is they should be able to find out what Kawhi Leonard and Paul George think of Ty Lue as being the potential next coach. So yeah, it's it's fascinating, and I don't I don't know where it's going to go from here. And you're right. I mean Doc Rivers, I'm you know just because I think of one of Doc's real strengths as being. Other than potentially this Clippers team, you know, like blending personalities and there wasn't a lot of Ubuntu in the Clippers (laughs) locker room this year. (laughs) But for that reason, a return to Philadelphia – and kind of mending some fences there, trying to kind of lead the lead this complicated Sixers team to something better than what they've been before. That would be really interesting to do. And also the idea that theoretically, I don't like D'Antoni there. Like I don't think that D'Antoni has the ability to make the Seventy Sixers what he wants them to be because their roster also is spectacularly inflexible. So, like, in some ways, my dream scenario is that this opens up D'Antoni to New Orleans because I really would love to see what D'Antoni can do with their offensive foundation, figuring out how to use Zion Williamson, and then eventually, you know, D'Antoni coaches a couple years, and and then they get in somebody who can work on the defensive foundation after that.
0: Well, I, I wonder if Chris Finch at that point would become the heir apparent since he was the you know defensive coordinator last year under Alvin Gentry had worked with D'Antoni in Houston, so that would make a lot of sense. But yeah, okay, so we've placed D'Antoni in New Orleans, Doc in Philly, uh, are we giving Tyler the Clippers job?
1: I mean, do you have any other candidates?
0: Sam Cassell that would be another yeah. but that to me is that to me is too risky for a team that has as much ride on next season as the clippers do uh, so that leaves indiana open we've got to we got to fill the indiana uh, vacancy it, it does feel like one of the tough things is if you're an assistant coach who's up and coming, you know you're looking to be this year's Nick nurse. the fact that there are so many established quality veteran coaches on the market, and that then you know Steve Nash got the job that wasn't didn't go to one of them it it seems like it's going to be exceptionally tough for one of those people to get an opportunity
1: and that's a shame because there is a very real chance that the best coach. Available in like in terms of eventual work product is someone who has not yet had an NBA job, and so. But it's it's different to ask that for the Clippers or the Sixers than for another job.
0: Yeah, and maybe OKC is is ends up being that kind of option. Yeah, I could
1: see OKC getting Darvin Ham or some right. somebody else, and I think that could would be a good decision for them.
0: Right, I mean, it makes sense with where they are in terms of their timeline
1: we only have a couple of minutes left but i wanted to kind of get a little bit bigger picture and i've been trying to reconcile what we take away from the bubble versus where we're going and i mean the idea of was this really an off season for some of these players for some guys it certainly appears that it was they've really looked materially better some guys it was more about rest and everything else but so taking taking this and moving forward are there are there any is there anything that you like that, that has really struck you about the action in Orlando since it started that is going to affect the way you like let's say predict the 2020/ 21 season
0: well conveniently Bobby marks and I did a future power rankings dialogue today that looked at our our top 10 NBA title contenders for next season and you know one of my big points was even though I think the idea of an asterisk is incredibly facile and reductive and I've still keep looking on the basketball reference page for the Spurs from 1999 and I don't see the asterisk there except the one that donate denotes that they made the playoffs which uh, every playoff team gets I mean like I don't know like how Phil Jackson just got to decide that there was an asterisk there and everyone decided to go along with that I don't I will never understand that but you know Phil is uh, he's got a much bigger platform than I do as it turns out uh, particularly in 1999 but I think that the fact that 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 conversation existed kind of made us say like tamp down the idea that, well, like, yeah, this is a really weird one of one situation. There's no home court advantage for the higher seeds. There was a several month break in between games. There was a situation where, you know, players were distracted by, you know, the conflicting nature of their their desire to, uh, you know, improve racial equality in this country and their desire to play basketball or their desire to be with their family for a long period of time like you know i i just don't think you can ignore those things when you talk about the fact that milwaukee and the clippers lost in the second round this year that two of the bigger upsets in nba playoff history happened in the same round like that we can't just ignore that it doesn't take anything away from what denver and particularly what miami did because we've just talked for a long period of time about how good miami is but I when you're projecting forward to next season, I don't think that you can take the clippers and the bucks as the teams that we saw in the second round this year.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point, and there are unusual characteristics, especially with the the three one lead situation, where you know the Clippers didn't get the calibration, like didn't get the reset of like going home and you know getting game. They didn't have a home game seven, for example. And it's not like the Clippers have the strongest home court advantage in the league, but that is still an advantage that they got. Or you could think of it as a lack of a, as a lack of a disadvantage for the Nuggets. And there's also the I like, Something I talked about a lot in the seemingly eternal time between when basketball stopped and when restarted was the idea that it added a lot of uncertainty. And I think we saw that in some really notable ways. One of them being the Clippers bench players. You know, like Montrez-Harrell wasn't the same guy. You know, like basically the idea that the outcomes were not going to be distributed in a quote-unquote normal fashion. And that, like, you could think of it the same way with injuries, you know, like that. Somebody's going to have a calf strain, and whether that ends up being an important player or an unimportant player on an important team or unimportant team, we don't really know and i thought that the you know that a lot of those things are going to fall by the wayside and that isn't to say the nuggets didn't deserve to win that series because they absolutely did but the and they dealt with their own like avalanche of terrible luck and circumstance with you know in the early parts of this gary harris i mean coming back midway through the first round series and bunch of players getting covid and everything else they like they dealt with their own challenges i'm not trying to downplay that at all but the idea that 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 you basically like threw everything in the box and shook it around so close to the playoffs, I think was fundamentally different. And I I, like you, I don't support any sort of an asterisk, but it's worth acknowledging that it is a different circumstance. And that's why for me building forward, I've been thinking a lot about the, the, the the idea of fundamentals versus results. So if Jamal Murray shoots 46% on threes moving forward, like he did in the playoffs, then yeah, obviously he's going to be a really good player. He's going to be a top 10, all that, all that type of stuff. But That probably doesn't continue, but the way that he was cutting through defenses and that he seemed like he had more depth to his dribble game and more confidence as a driver, those things could absolutely continue in some way, shape, or form, and so I'm focusing more on that and, like, Jeremy Grant's defensive potential rather than this guy shot really well, this guy didn't do it. And the interesting potential there, that the one that I'm kind of lingering on, he's young enough to uh, obviously improve. But, you know, Jason Tatum, not currently at the point where he can reliably create one-on-one for himself against really, really good defenses. I think, for now, that is a good statement of where he is in, in the playoffs, and there is no guarantee that that will continue moving forward because he was still absolutely awesome this season
0: okay i've got a few maybe unrelated thoughts uh we'll, we'll try to tie them together number one i i don't know that denver deserved to win that series but i what i will say is deserve got nothing to do with it so absolutely uh, you know that's not that's not what's important but uh okay i as far as the off season i mean i think one thing i wonder about is there there's definitely evidence in baseball that like players get better day by day basically but we kind of think of it as a season by season because that's how we separate it out and i'm suspecting i don't remember if uh kosya medvedenko has talked about this with his darko projections but i think it's probably the same thing with nba players where you know young players are steadily improving it's not just they're improving over the off season but again we don't we don't break it out and see it. And so, so the fact that we had this break here makes it more visible.
1: I'll, I'll, I'll make an analogy here. It's kind of like how when you're in school and you're in the, the age where everybody's growing, you don't really notice this as much during the school year because you're around everybody all the time. And you're seeing it more and more. But then when people go away for for summer break in particular, and then you're like, oh my God, they actually grew. They might have <laughs> grown at a different rate than they did before, though they might have, but you see it differently because of the change in context.
0: Yep, Exactly. Uh, The other thing I'm curious about, and this I think relates to Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell in particular, is the pull-up shooting that we've seen in the bubble has been just incredible. And there's been a steady improvement in it. And I wonder if. You know, this has just become such an emphasis in player development for young players that all of a sudden we're gonna see a huge number of players making, you know, a high percentage of shots off the dribble and it's just going to completely change the way that you defend the pick and roll.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point. And there'll be a huge potential storyline for the for next season and, and moving forward if that is if that is transforming. And It's not totally, like, impossible that some degree of this continues. I mean, and something that I've been thinking about a lot is the nature of player development and how, like, kind of how things can lag and the rise of, you know, three-point shooting over the last couple of years that I think it will lead to ripple effects more like 10 years down the line rather than this is, I think, closer to maybe like five. You might be able to define terms here better than I can, but... See, I think pull-up shooting could eventually be kind of where where some of this is going, just because guys are just going to have so many more reps doing this beforehand than they than they did coming into the league five years ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely it trickles down to younger ages all the time, and you know, I I I don't think that was as much of an. I mean, it's probably it's ultimately probably to some extent a Steph Curry effect. Like it goes back to him popularizing three-point shooting off the dribble and just you know him being freed up to take all these shots that coaches frowned upon a long time. And then both coaches realized, Hey, maybe, maybe some of these shots weren't so bad. And then also players putting in more time to work on them so that they did become more acceptable. And then just as you see the number of players shooting from deep now, I, I think, yeah, it's just going to continue to be an increased focus all the time.
1: Absolutely. Uh, anything else you want to tackle? I think we've covered plenty of ground.
0: I I think so too. Yeah. I, you know, I'm excited to see this series.
1: So am I. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Pleasure to join you, Danny.
1: Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for coming on. You can read his excellent and prolific work at ESPN. You can also listen to the fabulous Pelton cast that he does, and you can follow him on Twitter. If you don't somehow don't already at K Pelton, K P E L T O N. Absolutely love having him on and extremely pumped for this NBA finals, not the finals that I expect to see. I didn't predict either of these teams to make it though. I had the Clippers, of course, go to the Western Conference Finals, but the matchup is really compelling. It'll tell us a lot about both teams, and there are, of course, fun legacy implications and all that. So presumably next week's podcast will be a status report at some point during that. We will have games one, two, and three this week. So at some point between next Sunday and the following Sunday, we will do another status report, maybe on the end of the series. I don't think so, but you can keep an eye out for that. That is why it's great to subscribe, download every episode of Real Jam Radio. The one with Sirith Sohi came out on Friday. This one came out on Monday. That's just guest availability, topics, all that fun stuff. That's the way it happens sometimes with this show. Also, you can support the show by word of mouth, in person, online, social media, whatever makes you happy. Really do appreciate it. And leaving a rating and leaving a review. Extremely important because that helps other people find the show. Apple Podcast, Spotify, really wherever wherever you can do that and subscribe, download, really do appreciate it. But the single most important thing for the show and any other that has them to support us is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is Bet Online. Use the podcast one promo code to tell them that you came from us, which is much appreciated. You can also listen to my thoughts on the NBA Finals preview. Nate and I are recording that for Dunked on Prime. Uh, that will be up on Monday evening, Tuesday morning. Also, if for the f- the public dunked on this week, we did a- covered a lot of ground. We talked about Game Six in Celtics Heat. We talked about Game Five in Lakers Nuggets. We also t- previewed the free agent big man and did a, a mini off season mailbag, which was really fun. So you can listen to that. My written off-season previews are going on strong. I submitted two, and it might end up being three today, and then there will be more in the coming weeks. That's all at The Athletic. And I'm trying to get all of them submitted this week, other than the two finalists, so that they can all be published, so I can move on to other stuff, because now we're a month-plus away from probably the real start of the off-season. So a lot that I want to talk about and kind of get into some other discussions, and The Athletic, of course, they're an amazing employer, and they're letting me do that. If you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny Larue NBA, at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to listen. That is my promise. I'll try to respond, but I don't I don't make a promise there. Uh, it, it just it depends on how much time, and I don't have a ton right now, as, as many of you might expect, but I really do appreciate it, and I really do read everything right away. But that is all for now. Make sure to check out Pelton's great piece uh, on the Doc Rivers situation, which he talked about. I I read that between when we recorded and when I recorded this. KP just does such amazing work. You should check that out. And Dunked on Prime, the NBA cast will return for the NBA Finals as well on Wednesday, so you can keep an eye on that. That's Nate, Duncan, and I doing an alternate announcing is the right way to think about it for the Finals. So if that's something you value, you should check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.